Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with an old friend, Bernard Drew, who joins us to talk about the history of the Berkshires. Bernie Drew is a journalist, editor, newspaper columnist, reference book writer specializing in popular literature, an avid local historian. He is known throughout the Berkshires as our historian. He is active with the Great Barrington Historical Society, friends of the W.E.B. Du Bois home site, Upper Housatonic Valley, African American Heritage Trail, and other organizations. He's past president of the Great Barrington Historical Society and the Berkshire County Historical Society. His favorite Berkshire history topics include electrical inventor William Stanley, Canadian heroine Laura Secord, poets Elaine and Dora Reed Goodale, and iron bridge builder Charles E. Ball. He has hiked in the woods to discover remnants of 19th century charcoaling. He has researched the Civilian Conservation Corps Camp 196 at the Sandisfield State Forest and the sighting towers used in the construction of the Hoosick Tunnel. He has investigated original sections of Henry Knox's 1776 Cannon Trail and uncovered fascinating stories of the community that grew up around Lake Buell in New Marlboro, Monterey, Massachusetts. Bernard Drew grew up up in the Massachusetts Berkshires, lives with his family in Great Barrington. Welcome, Bernard Drew. It's been a long time. I've always wanted to have you on the show, and here you are. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Alan. So, Bernie, let me start by asking you, what about this passion of yours? How did you get so passionate about Berkshire history? Well, I've pieced together over the years. My parents were both Canadians, grew up on farms in rural Quebec, English-speaking, and they migrated first to northern New Hampshire, where I was born, and then to uh, the Berkshires, to the town of Windsor, where Dad went to work for Colonel Arthur and Bud and his wife, Helen Bud. They had a, became a 3,000-acre estate. It's now Nashville Reservation, owned by the trustees of reservations. And each summer, when I was young, we would take a week's vacation drive to Quebec and visit various relatives, including my maternal grandmother, Jessie Rose. And I, you know, it slowly sunk in while we were there. At that time, the, the town she lived in, Barnston, was largely English, but there was increasing changeover. More French were coming from Montreal buying homes, and there were fewer English who were going elsewhere to Ontario and so on. And somebody would always pull up and want to visit with my grandmother because she could tell them stories about the old families, about who lived on what farm and who did what years and years ago. And it sunk in that people are really curious about what happened in the past. And with our increasingly moving population, you settle into a new town on a new street, there's always a curiosity, well, well, what happened on this street before? Why is such and such in this town? Why is this building here? Why was a railroad there and not here? And so these are little puzzles to be solved. The first books I bought with my own money was a complete set of Sherlock Holmes. You know, I became the great detective. Well, I became a very amateur detective of sorts on my own in delving into local history. I am experienced, self-taught, but not credentialed. I just love doing it, digging into topics that range all over the place. The beauty of writing the Our Berkshires column for the Berkshire Eagle every other week is I'm given no particular limits. It could be women's history one week. It can be industrial history the next. Anything's fair game, and I like to really mix it up and and roam around and see what I can find. So let me ask you specific questions, and let's see how much territory we can cover. We won't have enough time, but let's at least try. Mount Greylock, where our newly acquired tower, it's been there for quite a while. We haven't owned it until now. How long has Mount Greylock had the name Mount Greylock? As best I can tell since the 1820s. There was a Greylock, an Indian chief of Warren Oak tribe in the vicinity of Westfield, and Greylock eventually migrated to what became Vermont. My best sources tell me there's not been an obvious connection found between Greylock and the mountaintop, but somewhere along the line, his name was affixed to the highest point. Most earlier writings refer to a saddle mountain or saddleback mountain, which is not an unusual name. The word Greylock or Mount Greylock first started to appear in print in the 1820s, and over time, little mythologies developed, of course, about the connection. One of the things we heard was that Greylock, the chief, um, would go up to hunt on top of Mount Greylock because so few people did, and that was one of the places he got his meat and other things, and that's why his name's attached to that. You haven't found any substantiation of that? Understand 
Greylock died in 1727. Right. Why would he have to go up to the top of the mountain to hunt? There's plenty of game down in the lowland. I years ago had a conversation with a man named Bearpaws, who I think was Mohawk, had some Mohawk lineage, and he was discussing a display at the Albany, uh, the New York Museum in Albany of dioramas of Indians and early peoples, and and one diorama depicts a hunter bringing a, dragging a deer uphill to his camp, and he scoffed and he said, "Why would an Indian do that? You'd you'd." kill it and drag it downhill during camp, but he, so it wouldn't go out of their way to climb a mountain like Greylock. So what else can you tell us about that mountain? Well, if we can bounce around a little bit historically, I have favorite stories. When the mountain was conquered by the automobile, first it was, a, it was steam. A man named J.C. Jager, agent for a Springfield automobile agency in July 1902, he and his assistant and a local newspaper man drove there Locomobile to the top of Mount Greylock. And what'd you call it? Locomobile? Locomobile, which was a steam car. It was actually developed by the Stanley Brothers. Stanley Steamer is the same thing. And you have a big interest in the Stanleys, right? Well, this is a different family of Stanleys, but anybody named Stanley, I'm sure, did something wonderful. So that was steam, but the tranquility of the mountaintop was rather burst. You know, steam cars just hiss and puff and don't don't make much impact, but a first gasoline engine vehicle to climb. So when the Stanley thing went up, Bernie, was was there a road, or did they have to make a road? This is 1902. There were roads. Going to the peak was a a glorified deer path, but you could get to the peak. I always like to look for aspects of women's history and all this. In 1904, two years later, as best I can document, the first gasoline-powered car made it to the top. It was driven by Charles Cook, and riding in the back seat was Edith Wharton. No. They're out riding in her Pope Hartford, um, Wharton. In fact, when she traveled in Europe, she'd had her first experience riding in automobiles. And so when she came back to Lenox and, and purchased the mount, she acquired a, a vehicle, including a Pope Hartford. She later stepped up a little bit and had a Mercedes. But the Pope Hartford made it to the top So after she, well... No, yeah, that's, okay. that's okay. So you should, so there she is riding up to the top of the mountain in a gasoline engine car. Do we have any record of her observations? No, not that I found yet, though I, I keep looking. Right. Let's switch for a moment, if we can, to the mount itself. You know, you've been there many times. You know the history of the mount. I was just there the other day. Uh, it's quite an operation, and it's quite a beautiful building. What can you tell us about the mount? It's been a while since I have been through the building itself, has wonderful gardens, and if you know where to look out in the in the yard, you'll find a little hummock, which is a dog cemetery, where several of her, her pets are buried over the years, including one comes to mind is was named Toto. I wonder where that came from. Don't know. I couldn't match it up with uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Okay, so when you have written all of these books that you've written, some of them are really fascinating. Let's start with Henry Knox and the Revolutionary War Trail in Western Massachusetts. And this is a real passion of yours, right? I mean, tell us where he started and how he got over our mountains and how he got to Boston. First, I'll try to describe my thinking in local history. I consider myself a micro, vertical micro-historian. In other words, I like to look at the same point over various layers of time, years ago or today, and then what is, what's in between. The horizontal historian looks at, oh, the Civil War, by narrowing the focus down, it's, it's easy to bring in lots of other elements along the way. The Knox Trail, I had avoided that as a topic for many years because it just looked daunting. A lot of what inspires me is, is physically on the land. If I'm going to write about a place such as the Mount or Mount Greylock, I like to be there. I like to experience, see it, feel it a little bit. The Knox Trail, where was the Knox Trail? Well, it came through the town where you and I live, Great Barrington, knew that. Where exactly did it go? Well, once you start looking at published stories, newspapers, accounts, especially recent ones, sometimes you get misdirected over the years. I know I was misdirected because someone at one point living on a certain road in Great Barrington found a cannonball and took it to the local weekly newspaper office and said, look, I found a cannonball over here. This must be where Knox Trail was. And it turns out there were cannonballs were discovered in Otis and Sandusfield and other towns as well. Well, that must be where the Knox Trail went. Well, for starters, Henry Knox, coming through in 1776, had 
cannon and cohorns and other weaponry, he did not bring any cannonballs. So he never dribbled any along the way. So that's not where the trail was. I did enough research to decide I probably can solve this little puzzle. I found a publisher and signed a contract and started doing the work. And in each of the communities, and I was just going to narrow it down to that portion of the trail that comes through western Massachusetts through the Berkshires, which included about five towns, six towns. So conveniently, a local historian, you don't work in isolation. You, there's a network of other people who love local history. Some just research for fun, some write and publish. But we all know each other and we all share information. So I managed to find people in each of the other towns I took on Great Barrington who had either identified where the Knox Trail was or had a pretty good idea. What were the other towns, Bernie? Well, Knox left New York State, came this side of the Hudson River, came down through Austerwitz into North Egremont, into Great Barrington, out through what was then Township Number 1, but it became Monterey, Otis and Sandusfield on to Blandford, and finally Westfield before heading to Boston. Let me stop you there and ask you a little bit about Henry Knox and his relationship with Washington and the Revolution. Well, Henry Knox was a bookseller in Boston, young man who enjoyed reading military histories and military treatises and he would acquire them from Britain, stock them in his little bookstore and read them before he sold the copies. And the bookstore was where? Downtown Boston. The uh, rebellion breaks out. Washington's up against it. The British are occupying the city. They have all sorts of weaponry, all sorts of manpower. The rebels have militiamen, farmers with muskets, and not a whole lot of real training, though a good number of them were veterans of the last of the French and Indian Wars, and so they had a bit of military discipline and knew how to fire a weapon. But the idea was broached, and it's not totally clear that it came from Henry Knox, though it may have, but at least someone came up with the idea, well, we maybe we could set up a, a decent offensive against the British in Boston if we had more cannon, more weaponry, and there's quite a bit of it in stock over in New York State up in the old battles to take over Fort Carillion and Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point and so on. So Knox made a good pitch. He, he was not yet a military man. He was given a commission, took off without it with his brother, came over to New York, hired carpenters to build sledges, hired ox team drivers, and took off in the late fall, hoping to cross the Hudson River easily and go down the river if possible. It turned out to be a not real cold winter. The ice was slim, and they had problems, and they had to stay to one shore and cross. They, they lost two weapons into the water. They recovered one. They made it to the east shore. How did they do it? I mean, was it boats? Did they have to construct things? That's the part of the story I didn't research. <laughs> I stuck strictly to my micro area. But what did they do when they got to the Berkshires? I think some, it was a, somehow they got over that they, river. They had to use some craft to get across, but they had to take their sleds with them. But it was the whole thing was a pretty audacious idea, wasn't it? Sure. Do you think Washington had any faith in it? I don't think he had many alternatives. He probably, <laughs> you know, kept his fingers crossed. But it took what, five or six weeks, so. Washington had no idea what was coming until it got there. You mean to say they got from Ticonderoga to Boston in five or six weeks? That's incredible. Yeah, you could do it a little quicker today. You could. So, Bernie, he gets into the Berkshires, and uh, we know that there's a sign-up right in front of the Great Barrington Town Hall, isn't there? No, you got to go a mile to the Belcher Square. There's to a sign. To Belcher Square, yeah. Knox kept a journal of his travels. Unfortunately, he was exhausted by the time he got to the Berkshires. He did not put in much for entries. There was one young man who was driving oxen who kept a diary as well, so we could see the waypoints. But also, by examining old maps and looking at what the roads look like, you could drive Route 23 today, and the, you're approximating the Knox Trail. But if you really look at it, where there's big, severe cuts through ledge, where they're going across fill and swampy areas, that's not the Knox Trail. The road was an old Indian path. It was barely a cart with wide there are very well-preserved portions of the Knox Trail in Otis State Forest, Sandsville, and Otis. Some of them are used by snowmobilers. Others are just abandoned, but you can walk them there. Well, anybody who's ever tried to get up to Otis from Great Barrington knows it's pretty uphill. It's a bit uphill, and, and Knox, when he, he reached the top of Mont Monterey, for that matter, he, he, he thought he could see the whole world from up there. And when the crew reached Blandford, just outside of Berkshire, all of the drovers quit. They'd had enough. They wanted their pay. They wanted to go back home. So they left. 
and he had to hire more Teamsters to take the sledges the rest of the way to Boston. So it had to be a formidable, you know, undertaking. It had to do all kinds of things we don't think about, like feed those animals. Sure, feed the animals, feed the men. I've been sometimes asked, and people see them go through, why are there no more eyewitness accounts available to document where they went? Well, as you appreciate, this was a secret endeavor. Didn't want it widely known. They were kind of stealth operation. They came through Great Barrington probably one afternoon. It was winter, snowy. People stayed inside. They didn't go outside to look. He divided his ox train into segments so a few would go through at a time. They covered up what they were carrying so nobody really knew what was going on. It looked like somebody was hauling wood. So they got through many areas without anyone noticing. They certainly did not encounter any resistance, any British sympathizers who wanted to report them. Well, it's really an extraordinary story. Do the people in Berkshire County appreciate this part of their history enough? I don't know how you measure it. People seem to enjoy this or other aspects of history quite a lot. As your biweekly column demonstrates, we all read it because it gives us an insight into what was going on. Sure, and what people were doing here before us. And sometimes they were doing the same things we are, or they're doing totally different things. People enjoy history if they don't have to research it. The prospect of going out and spending time looking at old deeds or reading wills in probate offices or getting blurry-eyed looking at newspapers on microfilm uh, doesn't seem inviting. That's the part of local history I really enjoy, the research, finding the stories, finding the details. And it's become easier with the Internet in the modern age. Sure. When I set out to do the Knox book, I first needed to tell more of the story of General Jeffrey Amherst, who came through 1758 and turned what was an Indian road into a, essentially a war road, a wider pathway, so that he could go to New York State to fight the uh, French. Through Googling and noodling around on the Internet, I came up with 15 or more digitized diaries of soldiers, of militiamen in that conflict, and some from the Revolutionary War, that I would have had to have gone to 15 different sure. libraries to find individual books. Now, if you're persistent, you can find an awful lot on the Internet. You know, when my wife, Roselle, was the short-lived chairman of the Alford Historical Society, which is outside of Great Barrington, for those who are keeping track, um, she went around to some of the older houses. And on each person that she talked to with an older house— they would say in a voice sotto, now, Roselle, uh, I don't want to make trouble, but my house is the oldest house, <laughs> the oldest house in Alford. Well, she had this all on tape, and when she gave her presentation, she would play them one after another, and which each of these people were saying, well, I have the oldest house in Alford. This is the kind of stuff that the historians have to worry about. And it's virtually impossible to exactly date a house. Because if it was talking about a 19th century house, certainly you, know, you can look at deeds and, well, a deed may be a description of a piece of land, and then the next deed may say including a building thereon. So that only gives you a range of, well, a house was built since the last purchase and then this, this purchase, but you don't have an exact year. And I ran into that a little bit in Great Barrington when I wrote a history of that town. And, well, which is the oldest house in town? Well, I looked at what the previous town historian Charles Taylor had decided and came down to one house on Maple Avenue and one house on Stockbridge Road. I don't know. <laughs> there was no way to, to be sure. So I kind of waffled a little bit and took a little heat. But yes, that's one of the challenges. You know, Chartox are in great appreciation of Bernie Drew because our house was built by Judge Dewey. And Judge Dewey, of course, was a very famous fellow. And I know that you, Bernie, found us a little tiny picture of Judge Dewey, which we had magnified many times and sits in our front foyer as you come into the door of our house because of what you were able to find for us. But can you tell us any of the story of Judge Dewey? He lived on Main Street. He built this house for his daughters. daughters. Yeah. He um, was a distant cousin of William Stanley, the electrical inventor. And? Of course. He was one of three justices presiding at the trial of Lizzie Borden. He probably is, would be reasonably be best known outside of Great Barrington. Lizzie Borden, who, of course, gave her father, what, 40 wax? 40 wax. Yeah. Or not. Or not. And was acquitted. Yes, and later, later took a summer job as a nanny in West Stockbridge oh, interesting. in our area. I joke with some of my historian friends, and we make the same assertion. You can pick an interesting national person or event, and one way or another you'll find some connection to the, to the Berkshires, maybe to Great Barrington, but 
it's fun to do. You, this connects to that. In Great Barrington, we talk a lot about second homers on our block. We have several second homers, people who come up. Were there second homers all through history, or is this a relatively new phenomenon? It started in the late 19th century, and probably was a result of the Industrial Revolution. So it's only the 1800s now, right? Yeah. yeah. After the Civil War, you would start seeing more of it. Industrialization in, well, say, in, in New York, New Jersey area, the rise of middle management people who suddenly had a little in, better income, and they were nevertheless living in areas that were industrial smoke, industrial noise, and whatever. And so they had the means, finally, to get out and the, with the railroad, the transportation to get out, and so they would travel north. The more affluent you were, the, the better place you went to. You would go to Bar Harbor or Newport, or you'd have a place in the Adirondacks. So, but, you know, there were differences of scale, but there were boarding houses in Sheffield, Great Barrington, other towns in the 1870s and 80s. Several of them are still there. When we moved to Alford, which was, again, outside of Great Barrington, our next-door neighbor told us wonderful tales about having gone to the railroad station in Great Barrington on a sled pulled by horses to get people to the boarding house that his father was running right next door to us. Sure. Well, in the wintertime, I don't have an exact date for Great Barrington, but the towns didn't acquire snowplows early on in the automobiles. Anybody who had a, an early Oldsmobile or Model T would put it up for the winter. Winter travel was not easy on tires, on wheels. You got the horse out in the sled. And that eventually changed as we started plowing roads and as, as everything evolves. Were the Berkshires primarily agricultural? From the start, there were subsistence farmers came out here. They found the eastern parts of uh, New England crowded. And there's the, the tradition of inheritance. The oldest son gets so much, and the second son and third son, the last son has to go off and find his own way. And so many were looking for new opportunities, and they would acquire pieces of land in the Berkshires. They would get a good price on them, but the caveat was, well, you had to clear so much land, you had to put up a regulation-sized house in, in a certain amount of time. And that was a lot of manual labor to get going. So subsistence farming continued up until the, let's say, the Industrial Revolution, the early 1800s, 1840s, 50s. As industry came in and there was a need for a dedicated workforce, more people had gravitated to the villages. By the time of the Civil War and just after, there were notoriously abandoned farms all over the place. They would, they would quit their farm in Alford and move to Springfield or something for a good job. And among the industries were iron furnaces. There was one in Great Barrington. There were 20-some-odd in the Housatonic River Valley, going as far as Lanesboro, Stockbridge, Lenox, down into Connecticut, Kent, Salisbury. They found a supply of iron ore in the, in the ground, but to process it and, and take out the iron itself, they needed a fuel, a really extremely hot-burning fuel, so they relied on charcoal. And so the lowlands had been cut off for firewood for timber and to create pasture land as they started to creep up the mountainsides now to harvest trees to turn into charcoal and that there are some photographs and other images showing area towns totally without trees Mm. and obviously they made a comeback the trees have, have regained their former ground but we were so desperate in the 1860s in Great Barrington there was a shortage of firewood it was getting expensive. Coal hadn't yet become a viable alternative. And so a business was started in our town section, Van Dusenville, harvesting peat moss, as they do in the United Kingdom, selling it in you know, chunks and you could burn it in your wood stove. They were so hard up. Bring the conversation around to Mount Greylock again, that reservation today is something like 12,500 acres. And this comes from my friend, the old-growth forest guru, Bob Leverett, of those 12,500 acres, maybe 400 acres are really old-growth on Mount Greylock. Never disturbed, never cut. Why? Because the terrain is so incredibly steep. So that means all 12,000 acres up there was harvested for one reason or another, for the same thing, firewood, timber, charcoal, potash. What else did they take out of those mountains? I know that I heard from somebody, could be wrong, that the city hall in New York was made out of Alford marble. Is there any chance that that's true? Sure. Alford Quarry is northern part of town, almost in West Stockbridge. There were primarily marble quarries, West Stockbridge, Alford, Sheffield. The Sheffield stone went into the Washington Monument. 
well, not the entire monument, but one layer of that, I'd have to go hit the books to find out about the New York City Hall, but I, I wouldn't doubt it. We were a good supplier of marble. Yeah. So, Bernie Drew, it's great to talk to you. We're talking to Bernard Drew, who is our historian, and we love him for it. And he writes every other week in the Berkshire Eagle, but he knows more about it than anybody I know or anybody else knows. So let's go to W.E.B. Du Bois, who has become quite the major point of pride for so many people who live in the Berkshires. But it wasn't always so, right? wasn't always so. It was in his lifetime. And then there's been a gap, but it's, it's great to see a renewed vigor on his behalf. And I'm sure it comes in no small part in these days due to the national stories about racism and oppression and, and the like. My next column, in fact, for Saturday's paper is about Willie Du Bois' teen reporter. Du Bois was a very smart young man and graduated from Great Barrington High School. He was only 16 years old. The principal, Frank Hosmer and others, well, of course, Du Bois wanted to go off to Harvard if he could, but he garnered scholarships sufficient to go south to a college there instead. He was persuaded to stay in town an extra year, learn a little bit of Greek and Latin, and to support himself and his mother, he took a job supplying news to a New York City newspaper for a black audience. So he would go to various events and jot down social nuggets. He also was able for a time to supply stories to the Springfield Republican, which was a very major newspaper of its day. And he sent them stories about, oh, a large barn fire in Great Barrington or um, changes in the people who were entering things at Great Barrington Fair and how they won prizes. And he attended meetings at Town Hall. And his experience here, I mean, he would have been a hit no matter where he went and what he wanted to do, but his experiences here gave him a sense of New England democracy and New England decency, and yet opportunity to improve yourself. He once chided his fellow black residents for not attending certain meetings and being there to vote to elect a black man as custodian for town hall, or it wasn't custodian, it was for a night watchman, for not hiring a black man over a white man. He was starting to gain a sensibility, which he perfected as he went along. He sure did, becoming the principal inventor of the NAACP, you know, among other things. Of course, later in life, we find out that he subscribes to a communist ideology. And when they try to put his name up outside of Great Barrington, coming in and going out, his home birthplace, all hell breaks loose. It did for a time, even though the signs had been made. But they're up today. They sure are. You'll find them in, what, three or four, four of them, I think, entrances to town. When we moved to Great Barrington, we got there in 1970, 71 full-time, there was great controversy over whether or not this communist should be honored in that way. And some of the local politicians and others were aghast at the idea this would happen. Now, here we are this year in which people compete for who could say better things about the boys. Things move fast, don't they, historian? They, they do. Of course, my interest is not persuaded by his politics. It's persuaded by what he was doing where, again, the, what he was doing in Great Barrington and who he knew in Great Barrington. I mean, he made friends with a young man who was sort of, well, I don't know, special needs is quite the right word, but he attended a private school, and he didn't have many friends in town. And so Du Bois, this was a white boy, and Du Bois became his friend, and he would often visit the house. And the friend was, in fact, the son of an industrialist in town, one of the richest men in town. And Du Bois writes in uh, various of his autobiographies about sitting in the kitchen with this young man and, and the Irish serving girls, and they're eating a meal, bread and milk, and that was just the best food he could remember. That stuck with him so that he he was enjoying this total democracy. He felt himself an equal with the white boy and the Irish girls. Well, he felt himself a little above them probably, but nevertheless, he just loved what he was finding in Great Barrington, and he, and he buried all of his family there, and he would have been buried there too probably if circumstances had been different. Now, Bernie Drew, are there stories in Great Barrington of W.E.B. Du Bois's beginnings to understand the evils of racism? He tells the story of when he was in high school. He was the only black student to go through high school at this time, and it was a social event, and the formality of the time was you had little cards, you exchanged your card with others, and, the, and a white girl wouldn't accept his card, and so he felt 
rebuffed. And he said in his mind, well, there's something going on here. In general, there was a very small black population in Great Barrington. I consider it more of an economic divide than a racial divide. Du Bois's father was a barber. His uncle was a barber. His grandfather whitewashed fences. You know, they, they had rather relatively menial jobs. Nevertheless, the community fit in well. One of the news items that Du Bois wrote in 1885, he'd been to a social event, and it was for the AME Zion Church Group. At that time, they had did not have a church building. And among those attending was a man named Jason Cooley, who had a home on East Street. Now, Cooley was an affable man, a good cook, and gained a great reputation for the annual Great Barrington Fair each fall for his fried chicken, and he made ice cream. Well, he and his wife, Almira, had a restaurant in downtown Great Barrington. They, they had three or four different locations over the years. He never made a great deal of money in his restauranting, but he, he got by. And he, so at this social gathering, Du Bois wrote, while he and Jason Cooley talked turkey, which could be taken to mean the wildfowl turkey, or he talked real serious matters of, you know, differences of races and, and economic status in town. So your interests are so wide-ranging, Bernie Drew, that some of them jump right out of the shoe and say, whoa, what did you write about this for? So tell us about Hopalong Cassidy. How did that happen? You wrote a book about Cassidy. Well, it's your fault. WAMC, years and years ago when I began listening, each weekday evening would play a half-hour old-time radio show. Indeed we did. And I forget what night Hoppy was on, Tuesday or Wednesday or something, but, oh, those are pretty good. I was of a generation, just grew up just past the old radio show era, and the Hoppies were, they had very strong production values. And if you've ever heard William Boyd, the actor, uh, has a great voice and a wonderful belly laugh. And he became Hopalong Cassidy. And he became Hopalong Cassidy in the movies and, and television and made 104 radio, half-hour radio shows. You know, a writer's always looking for some original material, original resources. So I said, well, the Hopalong Cassidy stories were really old Western short stories and novels written by a man named Clarence Mulford. And he grew up in Brooklyn and started writing while he was in Brooklyn, then moved to Freiburg, Maine, and had left his papers to the Freiburg Library. So my wife Donna and I made a little vacation trip there one year and spent several hours in the library copying out all this original notes and material from his files, and that became book one, which was a biography of Mulford and his experiences with the character. Well, I wasn't done with it yet. It was that radio show, which I still enjoyed, and I taped several that had appeared that had run on WAMC. You kindly sent me a list of or the name of the syndicator. I got in touch with him, and he sent me a list of titles, and so I set about you know, there's a network of old-time radio collectors used to collect things on reel-to-reel, and then you collected them on cassette tapes, and now everything's digitized. But I assembled a collection. I had a set of 104 of the, all of the hoppy radio shows, plus an extra one, which was a tryout show that didn't feature William Boyd. And so I researched and wrote a book about the Hopalong Cassidy radio show. Since then, today, you can acquire a single CD that has all 104 shows on it. Most of them don't have the Amazing. The tryout show. You know, where the interest takes you and where you think you might find a publisher and things like that. Was the book well received? I don't know how to answer that. It wasn't a bestseller, <laughs> but no one has challenged me on any of the facts. You know, Bernie, we had a little problem here with those shows because at a time of great political sensitivity, each of these heroes had somebody with them, the Segundo. And one by one, we got criticized for playing Hopalong Cassidy, and his assistant was California. California. So he was all right. That was okay. California was a Scotsman. Yeah, you so, could pick on Scotsman yeah, and get away with it right. still. Yes. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, on the other no. hand, no good. And Red Rider and Little Beaver and, of course, Amos and Andy. These were shows which really fell out of favor. And we got a lot of criticism when we took that half an hour off the radio. I can tell you that much. So you also have a very large interest in the Housatonic River. You know, there are people who write about the Hudson River all the time and other things. But the Housie was an important river in some ways, wasn't it? Well, for central and southern Berkshire, it was extremely important. Northern Berkshire has its own Hoosick River, which flows in a different direction. But the Housatonic became a major source of power, water power. Industry relied on it for decades. There were still several dams along the river. There were 
mills, many of them are gone now, but textile, paper. And the water ran the turbines, right? Initially water wheels and then turbines. Yeah. yeah. And then generate electricity, yeah. Is the river in good shape now? Depends on what measurement you're looking at. I'm looking at various poisons that get into water. Well, we have yet to resolve the matter of PCB chemicals that were leached into the river in Pittsfield years ago. They fill the sediment at Woods Pond in Lenox. They fill the sediment at Rising Dam in our Housatonic Village. Rising Paper, yeah. And as far as I know, you're still discouraged from eating fish that you catch in the river. So in that health since, no, it's not recovered yet. And we, we await EPA decision, which has been waffling back and forth for years on to extend it to which General Electric will be obliged to remedy the situation. Bernie, you wrote another book of the many you've written called Literary Luminaries of the Berkshires. Who were they? Well, we can lay claim to Mark Twain. We can lay claim. Can? Sure. He spent a summer in tearing him after his wife died with George Watson Gilder. We can claim Herman Melville, who had had a home in Pittsfield, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who spent a year and a half in Stockbridge, North Stockbridge. So let me stop you right there and ask you about that famous trip up to the top of Monument Mountain. You want to talk about that a bit? Sure. 1850, the railroad had just completed a line from Housatonic Village to Stockbridge, Lee, Lennox. One of the early riders on the train coming from New York City, David Dudley Field, Jr., a prominent lawyer whose father was a pastor in Stockbridge. Young Dudley's eventually built a home, Eden Hill, which is owned by the Marion Fathers today. Dudley would like to come back to the Berkshires each spring and spend some time here. He's riding on the train, meets up with some folks, Everett Dykink and Cornelius Matthews, young editors, writers, comedians from New York. They were heading up to the Berkshires to visit and Field said, well, maybe we should get together, have a picnic on Monument Mountain. I'll, I'll invite Hawthorne and Melville and Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And one of the Sedgwicks, of course, came. And so they set out and hiked to the top of Squaw Peak, politically incorrect name today, but that's on Monument Mountain, enjoyed a picnic. It rained a little bit. It's famous because Hawthorne first met Melville. They hardly exchanged words that day. Hawthorne was incredibly shy. Melville wouldn't know what to say quite anyway, but they did get together later, had a meal at the Curtis House in Lenox. Melville visited Hawthorne. His cottage was just below Tanglewood, and they struck up a good friendship over the years. What's not as well known is there were two women along on that hike as well, Dudley Fields' daughter and James T. Fields and his young bride. So, you know, again, that's another case of there are all sorts of myths and stories told about that hike and what happened on it, but tend to dig in and find out what really happened takes a long time. And one of the better sources was a, a really goofy version written by Cornelius Matthews. He was, he was a humorist. He made up names for everybody, but he, he told who was there and what they did that day. This is, again, a fascinating little challenge to me. What way did they take to get to the top of Monument Mountain that day? Well, it's not quite the same way you go up today, but almost. I know that in the middle of Great Barrington, everybody asks me about this, so I'll ask you. There's a castle. There's a castle on the main street of Great Barrington, and there's a story behind that castle. Well, it looks like a castle, so what's that story? Well, again, Mary Frances Sherwood Hopkins had family connections in Great Barrington. She married Mark Hopkins, the railroad multimillionaire. They had a palatial home in San Francisco. Hopkins died... His widow had made occasional trips back to Great Barrington, longed for the East again, so she came back. She had inherited the family home, which was a wood frame building, essentially where the present-day mansion is. Early 1880s, she had a carriage house built in a cottage for the groomsmen, and pretty soon decided she would build a, have a whole mansion set up there. She engaged, became Mead and White of... New York City to design the building for her. The building itself came from stone which was quarried directly across the river on East Mountain, which is conveniently the topic of my most recent book called East Rock is Falling. And the story in there tells of that quarry. To get the stone from one side of the river to the other proved to be something of a challenge. At that time, several of the bridges in that town were made of wood and to constantly carry a wagon with a 1,000 pounds of stone on it across the bridge day in, day out, wore out the bridge. The town 
put up a new iron bridge, but it was only, you know, in the finishing stages when she wanted to get her construction going on her new home. The town was not likely to want to give up the whole lane of that new bridge just so her wagons and carts of of stone could be carried across. So she built her own road going down the east side of the river up shortway, put up her own bridge, built her own road, and took the stone that way. They processed the stone in what is now Memorial Field, and they had a little tram built and carted the stone up to the construction site. It was an amazing, elaborate operation in 1884-85. And coming around in the circle, again, young William Du Bois, then a teenager, no longer in high school, but waiting to go off to Fisk University, had a job there as timekeeper, watching the laborers and, and again, educating himself into the ways of the artisans, the master stonemasons and their you know, interns and how, how you know, skillful labor worked. There's a lot of land behind that castle, down to the river. Well, it extends on the other side of the river as well. Indeed. Bernie Drew, I know that you have a real fascination with the Stanley family, and I wonder if you'd tell us a little about that. William Stanley had a great interest in electricity. He attended Yale for a year, but decided he wasn't learning anything, struck off, found employment with a company that made light bulbs, eventually came to the attention of George Westinghouse in Pittsburgh. You know, at the time, electricity was just coming into its own, but the electricity was direct current, the same kind of current that you would find in your automobile. And direct current to transmit at any great distance, you needed a larger and larger wire. And several large homes in New York City were lighted by direct current, but the power came from a charging station just down the street. The practicality of providing electricity to everyone was, you know, was slim. On the other hand, in Europe, there was developing an alternate way of doing things. Alternate is a convenient word to use, alternating current. It was not an unknown, but there were efforts there by engineers and inventors to perfect alternating current devices. Stanley persuaded Westinghouse to send for one of these devices. Stanley took it because he was suffering early phases of tuberculosis. He was not doing very well in Pittsburgh, so he, he elected to come to Great Barrington, where Again, he had family ties. His mother had been innkeeper for the Berkshire House in Great Barrington. He rented the old rubberware factory on Cottage Street, set up a small portion of that factory as a laboratory, devised an alternating current transformer, constructed about 20 of them, small boxes. He kept them in wooden boxes so you couldn't see them. In March 1886, he strung wires from the factory. He had a a Westinghouse generator, strung wires, and put boxes in several homes and businesses along Main Street in Great Barrington, including his uncle, Judge Dewey. Our Dewey, who who, who built our house. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, the way the current worked, it'd generate a certain voltage, and you'd step up the voltage, send it out over wires to another box, which would step it down for the, the amount that you could handle in a house. So he demonstrated the viability of alternating current power transmission in 1886, lighting bulbs on Main Street. Was it the first? Let me tell a little more of the story. Please. He was the first to demonstrate this specific thing. Alternating current would have happened without Stanley. Someone else would have done something. There was, it was like the development of anything, airplanes, trains. Was, there were so many hands doing so many things. Something was bound to work. Stanley happened to do it right at a certain time. We had just finished talking about the construction of what she called Kellogg Terrace, which most people know today is Cyril's Castle, named after Mrs. Kellogg's second husband. When Kellogg Terrace was constructed, it had electricity. It had direct current electricity. Mm. It had a small power station. That building is still standing behind Berkshire Co-op Market today and will become a focal point in the new development that's going on. Anyway, she had direct current. They had XX direct current, so they ran some wires to Main Street about a week before Stanley, and then they had their own bulbs. So when Stanley's AC came on and Mrs. Kellogg's DC came on, this is the first place anywhere ever in the world you could witness AC and DC at the same time, lighting the same kinds of bulbs. Wow. 
And that's an interesting first ever that is so convoluted to describe that I and seldom is, do. <laughs> and where does Edison come into all of this? Edison is happy with direct current for a number of years. There's a great battle of the currents, AC, DC, and so on, and finally uh, becomes obvious that alternating current is the only one where you could generate power at Niagara Falls and ship it across half of New York State to Albany if you want to and use it in that fashion. And Edison and Stanley met on one occasion, and Stanley said afterwards, well, Edison said, you were right. So um, there's one other question I want to ask you before we're done with this far too short interview, which I knew was going to be too short. And that is, you drive along, coming in from New York State, it's one word, New York State, into Great Barrington, into the Berkshires, into Egremont. And boy, you know you're in a different place. What's that about? Well, one could lay it to a variety of things. The Berkshires was largely settled by Englishmen. I'm talking about the European settlement now, not the Native American. Whereas there are great Dutch influences in New York State, and you have to have a sharp eye, but you can detect Dutch differences in architecture. I can think of several buildings between Great Barrington and Hudson, for example, with different architecture. But there, I don't know. You see it more often than I do. I do. I do it every I th- day. But I, I see, you know, a difference in architecture and spirit and well, roads. Well, I'll say the, we talked earlier about second homers and the affluent coming to stay as summer B&Bs or hotels in the Berkshires. There was not quite that level of activity on the New York State side of the border between New York State and the Hudson River. It, it took a lot longer for it to be discovered as a place of recreation and, and tourism. I think it's catching up. Let me ask you uh, real quickly about the Mahawi Theater <clears throat> in Great Barrington. Quite an establishment that was a movie theater. When was it built? 1912, something like that? Mm-hmm. I want to say 1904. 1904. It's been brought up to the nines now by a woman named Lola Jaffe, and it is now quite a sight. I was there when they reopened it, and they had the same bill. The day they reopened it, which was a number of years ago, not that, that long ago, which they had in 1904 when they opened it up as, as an original place, I found that to be fascinating. Got any insights? Well, the theater was constructed. primary mover was John H.C. Church, who was an industrialist, owned Monument Mills in Housatonic. It was primarily built for a legitimate stage, and they would bring in traveling entertainers and troops and stage shows and singers and elocutionists and the like in the early days. As time progressed and motion pictures arrived, it gradually became a motion picture theater. Uh, in, in, In between, it, the quality of traveling road shows diminished or the theater's ability to book them diminished. And so it kind of became what you would call a vaudeville theater. But it was not built for that. It was built with high intent and has the great, great stage and great auditorium and solid architecture. And, you know, you remember the, the days when it was kind of touch and go. It was still a movie house, but the questions, well, should it be divided into a triplex, quadruplex or something, small screens? And there were a couple of efforts to do something about it, and finally something took, and it was a major undertaking, but that restoration is spot on. Well, Bernie Drew, I, I have to say uh, to everybody, we've been in conversation with Berkshire historian, journalist, editor, columnist, reference book author, Bernard Drew, a great hero to so many of us. And Bernie, thanks for taking all this time joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alan. Good to talk with you.
been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Thank you.